Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Charade from 1963 with my fabulous guest, Zoe Palco. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is Talk Classic to Me. I have my wonderful guest, Zoe Palco, here with me today. Hi, Zoe. Hello. Thanks for being on this show. So today we watched the film Charade from 1963, starring Cary Grant, and more importantly, Audrey Hepburn. Zoe, what'd you think? I've had a long love affair with the movie that is Charade. I was trying to remember when I first saw it, and I think it was like when I was 10? But I remember love, loving it, like watching it over and over again, loving it. But I hadn't seen it since that time. And I loved it. As soon as the music hit, I was like, yep, I'm here. Yay. I'm here. So I always do like a first 10 minutes, you know, like what do you learn in the first 10 minutes? I feel like with this movie, you learn everything just from the song. Henry Mancini does the score. He wrote this song, Charade, and he wrote like all of the music that you hear throughout. And it's so good that we learn everything we need to know about this movie so quickly. You know, we've got like the discordant xylophone, a bleak landscape, a body coming out of a train. He's dead. Then we get this like fun, jazzy, like bump, 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 but up. It's, I wrote, um, it's a Pink Panther bop was what I wrote. Yes. It's so fun. It's so 60s, but even just from the music, even just from the credit sequence, which has like all of these arrows pointing all over the place. This is the movie. And circles spinning and like, It's a fun thriller. It's going to lead you in so many different directions. You're going to have a good time. Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, it's going to be romantic. Oh. It's so They set all that up right away. I picked this movie, Charade, and I picked it to watch with you. One, because it was fun. Two, because, I mean, we had both mentioned we love this movie. I've loved this movie for so long, but I was realizing, you know when you like have movies that you're like, oh, I know I love that, I don't need to watch it, so you don't watch them for years? Mm-hmm. I watched this all the time as a teenager, and then, I don't know, I haven't watched it maybe in maybe even in a decade. Like, it's been a long time since I watched this movie. I own it on DVD. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just sitting there sadly on your shelf. And there were so many things that I forgot. I always give spoiler alerts at the beginning, but if you didn't hear that spoiler alert because you skipped it, queen, spoiler alert. We are spoiling left and right. Twists and turns all over the place, and we're going to spoil them. So if you don't want to hear those twists and turns ruined, just go watch the movie first. It's available everywhere. Yes. The world wants you to watch this movie. It's free all over the place. Go watch it. And you're right. As an adult, I was curious to see how I would like it. And it is a lot sexier, kind of, than I remember. Mm -hmm. Or, like, more intelligent than I remember. But it's also 
more like it's less subtle than I remember. Like as a, a younger person, like a 15 year old, I remember being like, oh my God, this is so smart. And now I was watching it and I was like, okay, you're pushing it a little. Like we get it. We get it. You're witty. We get it. I was also a little cranky last night when I was watching it, so I split it in two. The first half I watched in like cranky Sarah mode, and the second half I watched in delighted <laughs> mode, and it made all the difference. So I think your mood also depends. Like if you do not have patience for anything, maybe don't watch a snarky movie. Maybe don't do that. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at this movie, it's a it's a lot like movies of the time. You know, if you compare it to a mystery thriller of today, it's slow. You know, it doesn't have the wham bang and the, you know, even the music is like very subtle. It's very strategic. It's like a slowish burn. I mean, it's still funny and it's still like, we can probably talk a lot about this later, about how this movie is a million different things and somehow it works. Like this movie would never be made today. It would be such a different movie because the pace is so different than what would fly today. But I'm like here for it and I love it. And I can't look away still as an adult. I'm still like, oh my God, I need to watch this scene. Like, I can't remember what happens. I do, but I really don't, but I'm gonna watch it. Like, I love it. I love this movie so much. Zoe, a remake was made in like 2005. A remake was made. Shut up. I swear to God. Maybe it was earlier or later. I don't remember the exact year, but it was like Thandie Newton and Mark Wahlberg and it flopped hard. And I remember at the time, it was, I think it was called The Truth About Charlie or something like that. And I remember seeing those previews and being like, is that charade? Are you trying to sell me charade? It just, uh-uh. I don't know that it worked as a modern thing. It's such, no. a, it's such a 60s piece. Everything about it screams early 60s. It is an early 1960s time capsule. And it also harkens back to all of the classic old Hollywood that was kind of on its way out, kind of this like last gasping breath, I feel, was this movie. It still has that like sheen and sparkle and like you're in this different magical Hollywood world it's just like it's a different feeling than the movies that would come after that figuring out how to do it today with Mark Wahlberg yeah wouldn't work shocker America so it's funny that you say all that the director of this is Stanley Donnan who directed all of the great movie musicals that we know and love so like Singing in the Rain, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. like That old chestnut. And he's so inventive in how he does musicals. Like, it's always fair weather. He's very clever about how he directs musicals. And that completely translates to this. And you're right, it's kind of like the last in this era. It's a very charming film. Yeah, it's charming. It's like subtly sexual. We'll get into all of this. So yes, love this movie, love Charade. I do also want to say, like... It's not an Academy Award kind of film. Like this is a fun blockbuster. This is just for fun. Um, so I want to put that out there. Don't pick this movie apart. Like it's for fun. Just have fun. <laughs> yeah, it's truly in that old Hollywood. Like just go along for the ride and have a good time. Just go with it. You'll enjoy yourself. You will not be disappointed. The cool thing about this movie is that the plot is so twisty and intricate and insane, twists galore, but I like that it's not just twists in the plot. It's like twists in the plot, it's twists in the dialogue, it's twists in the comedy, it's twists in the music. Like twists across the board and it all kind of works together and ties together in this insane package. Yeah, because with the plot twists, I mean, Cary Grant plays four different people in the span of just a day or two. 
Um, I mean, they're all him. It's all the same person, but his identities keep changing as we find out more and more about him. Um, oh, I should, duh, I forgot to do the plot synopsis. So you know what? We're going to get into the plot synopsis as I'm talking about all of this. Um, so yeah, this movie, Charade, 1963, as we've said, it's often called the best Hitchcock film that Hitchcock never made um, because it's got this Hitchcockian, like mid-50s, Hitchcockian feeling. We're talking not Psycho, not the birds, because I said that to my mom, and she was like, oh, he's scary. And I was like, not Psycho, not the birds. Previous Hitchcock. So, like, everything before North by Northwest, it's that kind of Hitchcock, um, where it's kind of, like, sophisticated, polished, fun, funny, debonair, funny, witty. I wouldn't say Hitchcock's always funny, but there's wit galore. There's, like, a banter. There's, like, a wink and a nod. So it's got that kind of vibe about it. Um, we're in Paris. Well, technically we're not in Paris yet because, oh my God, we start off in like a gorgeous, are they in Switzerland? Where are they? Are they in the Alps? I think they're in Switzerland. They're skiing. Or like the French Alps or something. Ah, someplace freaking fabulous, even though Audrey Hepburn kind of looks like a page boy. But other than that, it's fine. I still love that I was here for I mean, I'm still, I, I still think she looks fabulous because you could put Audrey Hepburn in a literal page boy outfit and you'd be like oh my god you're fabulous because she's Audrey Hepburn because she is like an angel on this earth who is just so wonderful just a wonderful human and person and she's great I mentioned we saw like the dead body and we get the cool like those credits (laughs) so we're like ooh, fun movie and then we're like ooh, we're gonna be jet setting through Europe how exciting is this um so we're like in ski country in Europe (laughs) and um we meet Audrey Hepburn and right from the get-go we know what kind of movie this is gonna be because we see a gun like we see Audrey Hepburn we see a gun pointed at Audrey Hepburn oh no what's gonna happen are there spies what's gonna go on and then water sprays out of the gun and hits her right in the face and so we know the tone of this film we're like oh I get it it's like a thriller comedy cool got it uh so Jean-Louis a little French boy who you know is really the answer to everything in the film it's like oh does something need to get solved hey Jean-Louis Jean-Louis there gonna magically somehow you know be there for this I forget how they meet Cary Grant he's just like walking by and he, they make, he like, gets Jean-Louis because he's throwing snowballs at some the Rothschilds some- yes the Rothschilds, um, mm-hmm. who are like very wealthy. Do. So yes, Jean-Louis is a little troublemaker and he was doing some little shit thing. And Cary Grant brought him back and was like, hey, um, here's this kid. And he and Audrey Hepburn banter. They have such good banter. It's incredible. Uh, the banter is on point. And he says his name is Peter Joshua. And the only reason I'm telling you that, fun fact, is that is the director's kid's real names. That's where Peter Joshua came from. So they meet. She's like, oh, I'm divorcing my husband. Just BT dubs. We're not in love anymore. I know he's rich, but like, nah, screw this. So she goes back to Paris, goes to their apartment. It is empty. It is completely empty. He has removed all of the items in the apartment, her husband, um, which also may I just say, this is what bothered me about this. As someone who keeps everything, I was like, does she not have like camp t-shirts from 1999 or like photo albums or books does she not have any possession he sold everything he sold her underwear like right i mean what i was thinking of the grinch i was like a crumb not even small enough for a mouse i was like really there's nothing left 
Because I feel like someone would leave behind something. They'd be like, I don't need this yarn from your crocheting. That can stay. I don't need your trash can. Like, I'm good. So anyway, that was just something that distracted me that I wanted to point out. Um, <laughs> so there was that. Anyway, so she's like, oh, snap, I got nothing. And she she bumps into Cary Grant. And this movie plays on our expectations a lot. They play with our expectations of what we know of Cary Grant and how we feel about Cary Grant and same with Audrey Hepburn. Um, so immediately, without knowing anything about Cary Grant, we trust him because we're like, oh, that's yep. Cary Grant. He's the good guy. Duh. And mm -hmm. so that's what's really cool about this movie is we're constantly questioning Cary Grant's character's motives because it starts off like she's falling in love with him way too fast and we're like, oh, we see why you married like a murdering spy because you're For a real. dummy who falls in love with people just <laughs> in an instant and needs yes. to know nothing about them. Yeah. Pattern. <laughs> Like, oh, please look out for that in your future, lady. Um, but it works out fine for her here, so she, I guess yeah. she's doing it just right. Yeah. Go, girl. I guess we're incorrect. They uh, go on a series of adventures together. She finds out that these three men are after her because in the war, meaning World War II, they all worked for the OSS, which was like the CIA, right? Yeah. So they worked for the OSS, which was the CIA, and they all, like, stole this amount of money from the Germans and kept it for themselves. And somehow her husband, Charles made away with the money and abandoned everybody else and they got nothing. So he's he's kind of a dick because she mentions like he's just a wealthy guy. Like I don't know where he gets his money and I don't know his family and I don't know anything. I don't know his closest family member. I don't know how rich he is. I don't know what his profession is. I don't know anything. I mean this goes back to what we talk about in the podcast all the time. If people just had more sexual freedom she could have just had sex with this dude right. and been on her merry way. But like no exactly. we have to get married to have sex. Therefore you're going to end up married to a spy. <sighs> so... These three men are like, you've got the money. And she's like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I don't have the money. Here's the bag that my husband had on the train. Let me dump it out several times. Nothing in here, everybody. So there's kind of an impasse of like, these three men think she's lying. She's like, I don't have the money. We've got that. We find out Cary Grant is involved with these three men. He assumes one identity. Then we find out, oh no, he's actually potentially a thief. Then these three men get murdered and Audrey Hepburn's like, oh shit, Cary Grant did it. And then Cary Grant's like, no, I didn't do it. And then we find out this man who she has been conversing with this whole time, who she thought was a CIA operative, is actually the extra man that was there who they all thought was murdered. Carson Dial, which is a great name. And I used to think of like Carson Daly when I would hear it because it was that era. Anyway, so it ends up that Cary Grant this whole time, after several identities, worked for the government in the Treasury Department and was just trying to recover this money. And now they can go have a respectable life together. They're going to get married. They're going to finally have sex like she really wants to. And it's going really to be great. Um, and it ends with one of the great lines <laughs> that is in the film Pretty Woman. I don't know if you guys remember this, but when you watch Pretty Woman... Julia Roberts' character is watching this movie and it used to tickle me as a younger person to be like, I know that movie. I've seen that movie. That's charade. Um, she's watching the end part where it's like, Adam, Alex, Peter, Brian, I love you. And I hope we have a lot of boys so we can name them all after you. I can't do Audrey Hepburn. No one can. That's the great line at the end of the film. So that's the movie. That's charade. All of its fun twists and turns, which we ruined in about three minutes. It really has um, a great balance of what you had mentioned earlier, being kind of scary at certain parts. Like it does get a little bit 
graphic in terms of blood, in terms of certain images, like George Kennedy's character with the claw, that's pretty intense sometimes. And like the dead bodies got me like as a kid, especially um, Tex. Tex. His face in a plastic bag, suffocated. His like mouth open, like that haunted me as a child. Maybe a teenager. I don't remember why I saw this movie. When I was younger, that especially creeped me out. And then Scobie, like in the bathtub, like that yeah. freaked me out. Like all of those, I mean, it was like creepy. See, it's creepy. I got freaked out when he like punches the hole in the wall with the claw. And when he's like coming, they have the camera, like someone walking backwards with the camera and he's coming at her and he's got like the rage in his face and he's yeah. got that claw. You're like, oh, this is a different kind of movie than I thought oh my gosh, this is a little intense. And then um, when he's having the big roof fight scene with Cary Grant and he gets pushed over the edge, again, it's a misdirection. You think he's going to die in that scene. He falls off the edge and we see the sparks from his claw hanging on and him like vanishing into the darkness. And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, what a death scene. And then uh, Cary Grant goes, Herman. And he's like, I'm fine. (laughs) He's dangling. I got that's what this movie does so good is that it goes back and forth between this creepy ass scene and then a winking and nodding at itself and everyone like laughing at it like immediately yeah. afterwards and it works because everyone has so much amazing screen presence and charisma like when um scoby was killed in the bathtub and it's like you know pretty disturbing and then immediately after, it was like, well, he doesn't look too bad. What if we dry him off and put him in his own bed? Because that is a haunting image of him in the bathtub. They show us his face, like, drown. Right. It's, it looks really intense. And just to pair those two things together, I think that's why I could watch it as a teenager. I think that's right. what makes it more accessible, is that they've paired the two things so that you're not as frightened as you might be if this was a different, like, tonal kind of film. Yeah, it breaks it. When it gets, like, really intense and they immediately break it with a great comedy one-liner or tonal change or whatever, and you're like, oh, it's not that bad, it's fine. Well, and even um, a lot of the comedic lines that they have, they'll misdirect you one way and go the other way. So it'll be like where Audrey Hepburn says to Cary Grant, do you know what's wrong with you? And in our heads, we're like, oh, she's going to tell him off. And she goes nothing if you're trying to scare me you're doing a wonderful job it's like you know yeah what you expect doesn't happen it's always the opposite what is said what is done so that's kind of like a fun way of misdirecting just with the dialogue I just love the funny little ticks they put in too about like Audrey Hepburn eating every time she's nervous. I, I love that little tick. It's so funny. Yeah. We know we know how she's feeling half the time because of if she's eating or not. Like, yeah. I love that they gave her that. And I love that they even gave the quote, too, about, like, her friend being like, it really pisses me off that you are constantly eating and are so skinny. That's really obnoxious. I just need to tell you that. Because that's all of us at home. Um, but, yeah, I, I love that tick of uh, what they gave Audrey Hepburn because her character is so funny and she's both like flighty and intelligent at the same time like she doesn't know what the cia is but she can plan like nobody's business when she's trying to like get away from somebody she has both sides of this coin and plays them so well since we never really necessarily know what's in her head we do because she's eating we know oh she's anxious and then when she's like oh i'm not hungry anymore we're like oh she feels fine now because she's so calm i mean it's it's so interesting i I was really struck with her performance because she she doesn't give a lot, but yet she does. Like her husband was murdered and she was, he's in the police officer's interrogation room. And she's like, her tone is very steady. She's not saying a lot. She's not freaking out. Like her body movements are very controlled, but there's like very specific choices that she's making to make the scene incredibly interesting. And I think that just speaks to the fact that she's just 
magical. Like you, you could watch Audrey Hepburn drinking a glass of orange juice for three hours and be mesmerized. And that's not a, to say that she's not talented. I'm saying that she's just so talented. She can do not a lot. And you're like, oh my God, I want to watch forever. You're making interesting choices. I'm invested in you. She is a magical being. Like the word to describe her, the word that people use the most is enchanting. She just has something that's so captivating about her. And I read this book and I read it like a decade ago, but I'm going to recommend it to everybody based on me loving it from back then. It's called Fifth Avenue 5 a.m. And Sam Wasson wrote it. He's a really good writer. It's like the history of Breakfast at Tiffany's from like a concept in Truman Capote's head through the whole process to like the release and reception of the movie and how it affects people today. And it's kind of the subtitle, the, or what's it called when it's below the title? Like this, the, it's like there's the title and there's like the thing under it that says like the blah, 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 the blah, blah, blah. I don't know what that's called. Um, but it was talking about how it was the dawn of the modern woman on film. And Audrey Hepburn was that. She was kind of one of the first people to portray a woman on film who was neither a virgin nor a whore. You know, she had both of those things and embodied both of those things. And um, you see that in this film, too. There's something that's incredibly enchanting about her. She's got great comedic timing. She's so funny. She is so funny. She's so funny. And I love in this movie the way her character constantly stands up for herself. This movie is a lot of men. Like, let's get it out there right now. 2021 Lens, we do this every time. Like, there are no people of color in this film. There are barely any women in this film. So, yeah, it's not like a great standard of anything. And I actually yeah. recently heard that um, I was listening in on a, di- on a diversity panel yesterday at this really cool thing for SAG. And it was like people talking about how 90%, 90% of the media that we have consumed in our entire lives was made for and about white men, period. Straight white men. And that's Oy. shocking. Like more people need to be telling stories and making films and make like we need more stories that are not just for white men made by white men. Um, so I just want to like get that out there. Like, yes, this is a story made by white men for white men featuring not a lot of women. But that being said, Audrey Hepburn's character is so strong in this. What I like about watching her in this is she is not afraid when talking to any of the men in this. Um, they try to belittle her and she never lets them. And she's not afraid of looking like she doesn't know the answer and she still keeps going. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that's a very... Yeah. That's a thing that a lot of people do where they're like, I have to look smart. I have to always know everything. And she's like, I don't know the answer to this. I really don't. Um, right. But she, yeah, she's never afraid to speak up. And I really like that about her, especially in that exchange with Walter Matthau when he keeps being like, when they do the spy agent, <laughs> when they go back yeah. and forth with that. Yeah, I, I really like that about her character in this, that she is like a very smart, strong woman. I think this is one of the few times in her career up until now where she isn't like, a woman that is transformed by a man like that what happened that's what happened in Roman Holiday does happen in my fair which is after this but my fair lady like she is helped to become someone else by the power of a man but like in this movie she's like I'm here this is who I am I really love Cary Grant I'm gonna go after Cary Grant period the end and I'm gonna help solve this mystery she doesn't like really change in the movie you know she's like transformed because of someone else I like her in this so two things one is because normally I look for like well what was the character arc and for him it was like his character arc ended up being like I'm gonna loosen up and I don't actually need to see these stamps right now and I'm gonna settle down and relax a little bit and her story arc was like I'm gonna get a little more information this time before I just <laughs> give you these stamps and just believe everything so I feel like their Good character job, arcs Reggie. was like yeah Reggie she's gonna get information this time and he's like <laughs> I'm gonna loosen up a little so those were their kind of very small character arcs because it's more yeah. 
like twist based than any sort of character based. But yeah, I want to break into what you said because I had never considered it that way before. Because I think to me, my first Audrey Hepburn experience was Breakfast at Tiffany's. I fell in love with that mm-hmm. as like a preteen. And again, Breakfast at Tiffany's, as we know now, like very racist character of Yunioshi. Really, such a shame that that has to be a part of that, you know? Because yeah. like besides all of that bullshit, there's something good there. So it's like yeah. such a shitty. I hate that that's there. That like mm-hmm. they had to make that stupid, stupid choice. Anyway, so there's that. Because I, I feel like her character necessarily isn't changed. But maybe it is. Maybe it's because she's in love stories, and that's essentially what love stories are a lot of times. Yeah, that's fair. Because um, the men change too, but I just hadn't considered it that way before, that a lot of her roles... I mean, the children's hour it was before this, and I it's not that way. But I don't... You're right, a lot of the films I'm thinking of, like Funny Face, she's plucked by Fred Astaire. Sabrina, she literally changes herself for the love of William Holden. Right, yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Not Roman Holiday, Sabrina. Yeah. Although, well, War and Peace... That's a whole other thing. She's Natasha's trying to change herself for Andre, and it just doesn't work. So yeah, well, yeah, that was a really great point that you brought up. I'm gonna like mull over that and try to like think of examples and be like, wait, what about this one? What about that one? But thank you for bringing that yeah. up because yeah, she's not like that at all in this. And I really do like how she is the one that goes after Cary Grant. One because it solves the problem of their crazy age difference because he doesn't look like a creepy old man, and she has agency like she's like i want you i have my own mind i'm not a baby i like you deal with it how do you shave in your dimple tell me so yeah there's this huge age difference between the two and we see this all the time in movies most recently Uh. we talked about like rear window how there's like a 25 year age difference between or was it 20 i forget between jimmy stewart and grace and we're just not supposed to think about it or notice it and in this one they call it out because yes carrie grant is 59 when he makes this and she was i think 33 when she shot it and 34 when it came out so there's a huge age difference there and um, Cary Grant actually was one of the people that wanted that because he was feeling a bit insecure when he made this film. And I think you can kind of see that in his performance. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah. a little insecurity from him watching it. And I don't mind it. <laughs> like, I actually think it's kind of nice. He's still kinda, lovely. He's yeah. still lovely. Um, but he felt like it was kind of embarrassing. First of all, this was his first film where he showed all of his gray hair. This is the first time on camera Cary Grant has gone full silver And he was feeling like everyone's going to laugh at me if I'm pursuing this much younger woman. It doesn't work. So the writers kind of tweaked it to make one, Audrey Hepburn hit on him so that the audience is not creeped out by a very much older man hitting on a younger woman. And two, they put a lot of references in the text to it. So they're commenting about it a lot. And he's always bringing it up first a lot of times. Um, And then she jokes about it sometimes too. But they make it less awkward that way. And they call it out. I appreciate that as a viewer and it I mean it feels more feminist but yeah it's I'm really glad that they do that I think that makes this piece a lot stronger and so I commend Cary Grant we're gonna talk about him later please don't come at me like no he was not a great human I know but the reason to me this is so interesting is because this is 1963 he is like she's so much younger than me this is gonna look terrible Two years later, he freaking marries Diane Cannon, who is like 19 years old. So it's so interesting to me that in this movie, that's such a concern for him. But then in real life, he's like, eh, it's fine. That is really interesting. You need to break that down psychology-wise, Mr. Grant. Like, what's going on with you? Cary Grant is so fascinating because he has such a messed up childhood. And I mean, people from the past, Nick Lang has said this on the show, like, they were all just terrible. Like, just accept that. Like, if you were from a man, especially garbage. Moving on. You're terrible. (laughs) So yeah, like a lot of biographers and historians were like, well, his terrible upbringing was what caused him to behave this way towards women. And like, yes, that is terrible. But also he did behave this way towards women. So like, we're just calling it out. We're just saying it like it is. 
because I know that he was his first marriage ended I think because it was very contentious in the tabloids and stuff but I guess it she claimed that he hit her his second marriage was to a very wealthy woman and they called them Cash and Carrie oh god <laughs> and that didn't work out so good he was married to Betsy Drake who's an actress they, that lasted a little while and it wasn't so bad but um I think they kind of got each other into drugs at some point he got really heavy into LSD and his marriage to Diane Cannon was kind of messed up and he was kind of controlling of her and like forced her to do LSD when she didn't want to. Let me see certain issues. If you want to hear more about Cary Grant, please listen to our Arsenic and Old Lace and Last of Sheila episodes. Not that he was in The Last of Sheila, but we talked about Diane Cannon. So there, yeah, go. Okay, <laughs> so we got some of that stuff out. But yeah, where were we? Appreciating that there is an age difference and them calling it out versus like every other movie ever where it's like, no, this is normal. Or just like assuming that she's way older than she is, I feel is like how they solve it nowadays. It's like, you're just meant to believe that a 35-year-old woman is... 47 no cast a 47 year old and you'll you'll know then what a 47 year old looks like okay this subject pisses me off and i enjoy how in this movie i know it's a product of its time but just like you said i do very much appreciate the fact that they actually acknowledge it it's yes. not like today where they're like oh they're married and it's totally normal to have a 58 year old man married to a 39 year old woman and you're just like they don't talk about it you just assume that oh, she's like his age. That's what a 48-year-old's supposed to look like. Like, no, she's 35 or whatever it is. So I like how they acknowledge it. Totally. And when I like that for him too, it's not just that they're bringing it up. He's like, no, this is why what worries me. Like, I, I think for mm -hmm. him, it's also cool that it's a hindrance. Because I think a lot of the stereotype of older men with younger women, they're like, look at this hot trophy that I got. Look at me and my macho, like, cis white old manness. And so <laughs> I like that for him. He's like, no, I'm not really comfortable with that. I don't know that I'm comfortable with that. Yes, I'm attracted to you. But, like, this is a hindrance, I think, to our potential relationship. Right. And I also was noticing, I would mentioned that I felt like Cary Grant was a little more insecure in this role. Like, you could kind of sense that a little bit. Part of me wonders if it's because he had to keep such a straight face as the character because we were never supposed to know who he was. But then mm. the other part of me was noticing that the language was a little more sexual at times. And what Cary Grant does so well, especially in films from the past, is he's so great at like subtly or through subtext getting across sexual emotions. And so what I think is interesting is it seems like when he's younger, he has no problems with like being this kind of sexual presence. But what I was getting from this film was that he was actually uncomfortable. Like when he had to say the line, like, don't you know how hard it is keeping my hands off you? I was like, I cringe for him because I could feel his discomfort at saying that. And I wonder if it's because this is still pre-code, but back in the day, he wouldn't have even been allowed to say those things basically because he'd have to get it across with other words. So I wonder for him, him if it's just like saying the language is more difficult adjusting to a different style that he has to adapt because the language has changed because he's been around long enough where things are shifting because he's been in sexy things like his stuff with Mae West is hot and like um notorious that kissing scene in Tori like he's been in some very sexy things but those things weren't written necessarily with sexy words mm -hmm. they were written with like sexy subtext so it's so interesting that the sexy words almost even in Affair to Remember, we watched it last week. He is so sexy in that. And that's just a couple years before this. That's five years mm -hmm. before this. So I don't know. I, I was just very interested by all of that stuff. Six years. I can't do math. It's six years before this. I was noticing that a lot this time because younger me didn't clock it. Younger me was just like, mm -hmm. that's Cary Grant. I, I didn't think about it at all. And younger me didn't clock how old he was, which is weird because I was young, but like, I just completely took it for face value. It's like, oh, it's fine. Like there's to be in love. They're the two stars and it's fine. 
Like I didn't bat an eye at it, which is so weird. Well, I have a theory too, because I think when we're younger and we watch this, we just watch it like, that's Cary Grant. Like everything I've ever known and seen about Cary Grant is just Cary Grant. He is yes. always all of the Cary Grants at once in my young little head. So now when you watch it as an adult, same with Audrey Hepburn, you're like, she is all of the Audrey Hepburns I've ever seen in one person right now on screen. And so like when you're a kid, it kind of blends that way. And then when you grow up, you're like, oh no, I'm looking at this through totally different eyes of like seeing you for your actual age, seeing who you are in this role versus like compiling every single thing I know about you and like putting that onto your performance in my own head. Although I will say that's how this movie does work too. I mentioned it earlier, the expectations you have about each of them are really what drives this movie forward. Because if it's somebody else, if it's not Cary Grant, we don't know what to do about Cary Grant's character, I think. It has to be like a well-known and beloved actor who you cannot bear to see be a villain. It has to be that. And you instantly need to fall in love with Audrey Hepburn. Which you do from the second she's on camera with her like weird, her conical hats. Let's just move into the fashion, yes. It took me halfway through the movie to realize why she was doing that. I was like, oh, because you have a beehive. You can't ruin your hair. Exactly, the big hair. You need your cone hats. She had so many cone hats. So many cone hats. she could pull them off. I could not pull off a cone hat. I'd look like a dork. I would look like a sad elf that had strayed away (laughs) from like the elfin land. Like, oh, I could not pull that off. She looked great. Do you want to, for a second, just talk about palette of the movie? Very interesting, very cool. I feel like it's very French because it's kind of rosy and brown, but then you get like pops of 60s color in it. So it's like a really cool set tone. You may have noticed people at home. She is dressed by Givenchy. And that's who dressed her forever, right? So the very first movie that Audrey Hepburn did that made her a star was Roman Holiday, right? She wins the Academy Award for it, wins a bunch of awards. Edith Head dresses her in that. We know Edith Head for being like a fabulous costume designer, but Edith Head was not fashion. So she could make like men like Cary Grant look good. What she thought she was doing was everyone should have a certain silhouette. Like if you're a woman... I have to hide things about your features so that you have this silhouette. So what she did for Audrey Hepburn in Roman Holiday was like gave her these sleeves that she rolled up and kind of bulked her up on top. She gave her a waist, Mm -hmm. made her look like she had curves with that long skirt. This is not Audrey Hepburn's style. Audrey Hepburn is a very stylish person and she's kind of like, what the hell is this? Like this isn't fashion. This isn't fashionable. Like yes, I look beautiful, but this isn't fashion. So in 1953, the same year as Roman Holiday, she gets involved with Givenchy, the designer. And from that point on, her gowns are by Givenchy, period. She is their person. They are in all of her movies and her wardrobe is astonishingly gorgeous. Of course, with like the exception of like the children's hour and like the nun's story. That was not Givenchy, okay? <laughs> um, but for the most part, if she's wearing a gown or a really cool outfit, it's Givenchy. And she makes that brand and she is stylish as hell. So her whole wardrobe in this is just like a gorgeous array of Givenchy. And she fitted all in those two little suitcases that she had from the Swiss Alps. Very impressed by her packing skills. Like one suitcase was for the cone hats and one suitcase was for all of her coats. Oh my God, I had never put that together. You're so right. (laughs) Yeah, I love that she's like, this is all I have left in the world. That was what killed me too. When she runs into that empty apartment and she has a whole room that's just a closet and every single part of it was empty. And I was like, ooh, that would feel like a loss, I bet. All the Givenchy clothes. All the Givenchy. (laughs) Ooh. Oh, and like her her friend just commented of like, well, if you have a rich husband, then you have all the newest fashions. Like, why do you want to divorce? What's cool about Sylvie is that 
at first you're like, oh, is this just like another rude rich person potentially? No. Sylvie's just a badass lady who works at the Interpreting Center who's super chill about everything the same way Audrey Hepburn is. So Audrey Hepburn was treating her friend to a fancy vacation, which is what I realize now. What a cool friend they both are. Also, this is just a plot hole that was bothering me that I really need to say. We're not even here yet, but I have to say it. When they figure out it's the stamps, which we all knew in the beginning, by the way, because Jean-Louis, they mentioned like, I love stamps. I am a little French boy. Stamps. So if Jean-Louis says it, you know it means something. So yes, Jean-Louis and stamps. So the answer is the whole time that she did have them in her possession and they were the stamps on the letter. So what I noticed is they figure out that they have to find out where the appointment book is because it's missing and they like need to go on this appointment that the husband was going to go on before he died. So Reggie's working at her job, doing the translating because she's a translator. And um, she realizes like, oh my God, he was going to go meet somebody in the park. Let's go now. But while she's at work, she's like, hey, Sylvie, your part's on next. Go talk. So her friend is translating, but then they get to the park and her friend is there. (gasps) Mind blown. So I just ruined this film for everybody. This film is a liar. Sylvie could not be in two places at once unless she also is just like, you know what? I'm going to leave work now too. Well, after like Audrey Hepburn's like, I'm talking to Cary Grant at my little office and everyone in the interpreting is like, oh, what is happening? Maybe everyone just decided to take a long lunch after that. So Sylvie left. Maybe that's how I'm going to justify it because otherwise that's going to bug me. It bugged me. No, 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 Sylvie, you were (laughs) just interpreting. I saw you. Why are you now at the stamp place with Jean-Louis? So whatever, it's fine, it's fine. We figure out that it's stamps. Thank God they sold the stamps to the nicest man in the world. I feel like that man was the most unrealistic part of this whole movie. Yes, a nice person should do that. But like who they cast and how he delivered those lines, I was like, wait, what now? <laughs> no, you're not real. That's not how people do things. It's like, I have I possess them for a little while. That is enough for me. Scene. And I'm like, what? I was into it. I loved it. Uh, no, I, I no. loved it. I was like, you sweet old man. I love everything about you. Plus, you know what? I just realized, I bet you he's already rich because he has that little stamp hut full of stamps. So he's clearly been collecting forever. And I feel like this must just be a hobby. Like he must just be rich and money really is not that important to him. I'm just going to tell that to myself. Otherwise, he's going to bug me. Just like Sylvia sitting on the bench after he's supposed to be working. I talked about how cool I think it is that Charade is the title. Like, what an aptly named title for this piece. Yeah, it's a classy title. So Peter Stone and Mark Bem wrote the story as a screenplay one billion years before. Pitched it to a bunch of studios. The studios were like, no, this is stupid. And they called it something like The Unsuspecting Wife or something like that. And then they were like, well, screw this. Let's make it a book. This would be a really good book. So they turned it into a book, called it Charade. And I think Red Book published it in segments in their magazine. And then the studios were like, we love this. This is a great piece. And the guys were like, yeah, we know. Um, so then <laughs> the one guy, Peter Stone, wrote it back into a screenplay. And that's what we have today. And Stanley Donnan like snapped it up. But I love that it's called charade because it's so invoking of what this movie is. Like, first of all, it's a French word. We're in France. The music is very French. Everything invokes France. And then charade is like a deceptive act, right? Um, and that's like what half of the people in this film are doing half of the time. Like Cary Grant, Walter Matthau, who we have not even gotten into yet. Um, this cast is great. But yeah, so that's, I think charade is such an apt title. It's not like lies, you know, it's different. Charade is different than lies. And that's important because I feel like that was kind of what Cary Grant was doing. You know, he's not a liar, you know, he's in a charade. And so it's not as bad because... 
Audrey Hepburn's whole shtick is that she equates truth with love. If you tell me the truth, then I can love you. And that is what love means if you tell me the truth. And Cary Grant constantly does not tell her the truth, but she still falls in love with him because it's like, it's a charade. It's not lies. Um, so what you're saying is he's putting on a show just like Bartholomew and they all end up on a stage. The big dramatic climax is on a stage. My little theater nerd, Zoe, back in high school, I was like, yes, theater saving the day. The villain is killed by a trap door. Love it. Also felt like that was not really how that would work at all, but it's Mm -mm. fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yep. I also love how the only door that's locked in the entire theater is the cue box, whatever it's called. Like, that's the only door. Like, you could just walk into the theater, walk into the stage, turn the lights on, go to the basement, work the trap door. But that, that cue box, man, locked and bolted. Cary Grant's the one that gets her caught. She was so not caught. And then Cary Grant had to be like, what does this do? Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. Come on, Cary. And then he kind of has that sexist line too earlier where he's like, ugh, women and their logic. And she's like, well, it's gotten me this far. And I'm like, yeah, yes, it has, Audrey. Right? They say it better than that. That was a really bad retelling. But (laughs) that was the only time I was annoyed with Cary Grant was when I was like, don't be sexist right now. It's that one. And then there's one other one in the beginning when he was like, I don't think this is a situation a young woman can handle by herself. And I'm like, shut up, Cary Grant. She's fine. She doesn't know anything about her husband, but she's fine. The other two like 2021 lens parts to notice are just like the whole fable about the truthful white foot and the oh yeah whatever <laughs> the black foot. That's definitely my racist flags were going off. Uh, racist oh, yeah. to Native Americans, probably racist to like just things being white and black um, in general, like. <laughs> The black not being the good thing and the white being the good thing. That's pretty racist. And then um, whether it's intentional or not, I don't know. That's where I was going where I was like, oh, God, stop, stop, stop. And then um, the parts where they were doing the orange. So they go to this nightclub. Oh, the orange. everyone in the audience is part of the show and they have to pass this orange from their necks. And I just kept thinking like, this is only good for the men. The men are the only people getting anything out of this. They're just groping the women, basically. This is bullshit. This is bullshit. I so remember like thinking as a young teen being like, this is what the cool kids do at parties. They play the orange game. And I'm like, someday maybe I'll be at a party where they like play the orange game. Never happened because it's not a thing. I feel like I was like, oh shit, I hope this never comes up in my life because I do not want to play this game. I say no now. I don't know how I'm going to say no in this situation. See, that's the difference between you and me. I was like, bring on the oranges. It never happened. I feel like they put stupid moments in there though. I mean, clearly it was in there because that one point they have to like connect on a deeper level. Like we have to see Audrey Hepburn looking into his eyes and having that moment of like, oh, we really like each other on a deep level. But I feel like they really just put it in there because there were certain times where they were like, we need Cary Grant to do his patented Cary Grant screwball comedy shtick so we're gonna add a shower scene where he which is the greatest Cary Grant scene in this we're gonna add a shower scene where he showers in a suit and it's very silly and we're gonna add an orange scene where he can make really funny faces and be very silly just so you remember that he's a silly Cary Grant just so you remember I think I read somewhere that like he did the shower scene with his clothes on partly because he didn't want to get shirtless because he was old and 
self-conscious. That part where he takes out his glasses to read the instruction and flicks away the water. It's so cute. I love it. Ah. It's like such a moment, like a very specific moment that I remember watching as a teen. Cary Grant doing what he does best, like those little physical comedy bits that are just so great. Well, and I like too, that scene has some consent stuff that I like where there's some consent stuff in here where Audrey Hepburn doesn't listen to him. I'm like, girl, no, he said no, no means no. But there's a part where he's like, stop doing it. And she stops. And he's like, why'd you stop? And she's like, you said so. And I was like, yes, see, consent. Um, uh, But I do love that she is begging him to take a shower in her hotel room. And he's like, okay, fine, I will. And she's like, wait, no, I didn't. No, what? Close the door. But yeah, I guess maybe she thought they were just going to make out, not totally like have sex in the shower. I don't really know. That's kind of the tone of the movie. It's like they hint at it, but like they don't. Like they never overtly say anything or do anything. Like it's still very much 1963. This is true. We're still in production code. Like even when the detective asks, he's like, were you sleeping in his room? And she like kind of looks away and she's like, no. And you're like, ooh. I mean, she probably wasn't, but she could have been. I always thought she was. I think that would be great for both of them. Um, I mean, I talked about this earlier. The Wit and Charm were like a little bit heavy handed sometimes it's like so funny because they're so subtle about certain things in this movie but then other things they just hit you over the head with they're like we want you to know this is clever and charming do you know it are you aware (laughs) um so it's heavy-handed but i still am charmed and still appreciate the wit yeah it works i love when they reference things about their real life they reference my fair lady yes i was like oh this is great (laughs) i love it where are we on the street where you live we haven't gotten to Walter Matthau's insane character yet. He plays this man, Bartholomew. Oh my God. The things they are trying to do to get us to like and trust this man. Poor Walter Matthau. I feel like he was more known for like sleazy characters and he didn't really get into comedy until the odd couple, right? So like he he was cast in a role that he's always cast in like until that point of like the sleazy, untrustworthy dude. Who's like crude and kind of frumpy. Like they have him burping and like doing squats and like eating eating. liverwurst. Liverwurst is following us. People freaking love their liverwurst back in the day. You're right. I have you on for movies where they talk about liverwurst. Yep. My Christmas and now this movie. People in like the 50s and 60s freaking love their liverwurst. I don't even really know what liverwurst is if I'm being 100% honest with you. I honestly don't know and I have no desire to know. No. I picture like a pate or like a pate sausage. Like a sausage made of pate. It sounds gross either way. Um, But yeah, I noticed how heavy handed that was because I think I actually remember I don't remember the exact first time I saw this but I remember being caught up in the twists and turns. Like I remember being like, oh no, Cary Grant might be a bad guy. Oh no, who, you know, who can we trust? Oh, it's the stamps. <gasps> no, Bartholomew was dial the whole time, right? I remember being shocked by all that. Oh yeah, but same. now when you watch it, it's so heavy handed, that first scene with him, they could not make it more obvious that he is not this person. He's doing everything he can to try to look at home in this place, like pointing out the pictures, laying around on the desk. Like he's bringing up things that a normal person person would never bring up in a meeting just to try to make everyone feel like this is really his office so as someone who knows the ending you're like oh my god you're the most suspicious but we also know Audrey Hepburn is a non-red flag picker-upper so it does track that her character would be like okay and he also like doesn't help her throughout the movie at all no backup no backup all he does is like pretty much not so subtly freak her out like when they're walking down the street and he's like hey look at that giant meat market there with all the dead things hanging 
Isn't that crazy? She's like, uh, yeah, I hope that's not me. He's like, <laughs> exactly. There's a lot there now that we can watch it in hindsight. Although this is what I was wondering this time. I was like, where did he get this nice house that he's staying in? They try to pick up a little bit that he's dialed. They, he makes a comment about something being expensive. Like she breaks the, the cigarette. Cigarettes. Like, Those are expensive. And you're like, oh shit, he needs money. But if he needs money, why is he staying in this nice place with this bed that's made of like oak? Where is this beautiful office that he's taking this call doing squats in? Because if he like snuck into Bartholomew's office that one day, I don't know. These were the questions. Another plot hole, I guess. These are the questions I was asking myself. Maybe he's just a grifter and finds ways of being sneaky into things. But how does he have the same number every time? If, whatever. I, that right. that was a little side plot for me. I was like, you're in a pretty fancy place. And in the beginning when he's eating the food and drinking the wine, you're like, oh, he's doing that because he probably doesn't have access to that. And that's like a treat for him. So he's going to get what he can out of this. Oh, sad yeah. Walter Matthau. Yeah. He's trying to make it look like, look, I'm at home here. This is my office. I know where everything is. But he's also like, I haven't eaten in five days. And when they go out and get like dinner and whatever, she has food and he just has a drink. And that's when the cigarette conversation happens. And I also noticed a lot of profiles, like two people profiles their face tight together over and over and over again. And I was like, ooh, I wonder what you're trying to say with this. I'm sure it has a meaning because you're doing it a lot, but I don't know what the meaning is. Yeah, like good and evil, two sides. I actually wrote that down. Now that you say that, I just remembered I made that note of like, if someone's a bad guy, they're on the left side of that. Uh, and if someone's a good guy, they're on camera right. So actually, mm -hmm. yes, you're right. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. But it happens in the elevator. And we don't know either of those people in the elevator. So maybe. Right. And it also happens between um, Gideon and Tex, too, when they're talking about like conversation of like, you know, conspiring yeah. together if they find the money just themselves. And they're like the two. They're both terrible. In profile. This movie sets us up to hate everybody. So when they all die, we're not so sad about it because they were all just really terrible people. Um, yeah. So that when like Carrie Grant and Audrey Hepburn walk out alive, we're like, okay, good. They're the only That's two fine. people. Everyone else yeah. is pretty awful. So that tracks. We're, we're okay with this. When Scobie's in the bathtub drowned and Tex is like, aw, you would do a mean thing like that. You just reminded me of one other kind of inconsistency of Scobie attacks Audrey Hepburn in her hotel room and then calls her up to warn her. I'm like, dude, make up your mind. I think he just wanted to screw over Carrie Grant because he hates him. Got it. So that was more of a fuck over Cary Grant moment mm -hmm. than a, I think so. Than a help Audrey Hepburn moment. And I do appreciate how, speaking of that moment, that it was kind of like the reveal of like, he's like, don't trust him. Because that's like a bam, bam, bam so during that time, which I think is really cool. They don't like drag it on so long when like, you know more than the characters do. And you're like, okay, I get it. Like, which can be kind of a, a schlogger through like for a lot of suspense pieces when they're not done well. No one stays with that misinformation for too long and it like it keeps it moving, which I think is really cool. Constantly it's constantly updating. You never know which end is up. The one that hurts the most is when you first find out that Cary Grant might be working with these men. Mm -hmm. That's the one that hits you the hardest because you're like, no. Yeah. But then once the twists start unraveling so quickly you're kind of okay for the rest of it because you're like, well, what's going to be next? What's the next one? Right, because you feel on edge. Like, you don't feel like you're on, like, solid ground because you know that things can change at any point, which is cool. They make his character so vague. That's why they give him these physical comedy bits because his, he doesn't express too much of himself. He's always playing a character and he's always pretty vague about every answer. And the vague answers could apply either way. They could apply, like, to be on her side or to not be on her side. So until you get to the final resolution and you're sure of him and who he is and what's going on, you're all 
always on edge with Cary Grant and what's going on with him. You're always sure of Audrey Hepburn and who she is. You're yes. never sure of, except at the end when there's one moment when you're like, oh my God, did she take the stamps? Does she know? There's like one tiny moment when you're like, oh, maybe she, maybe she does know. Maybe this whole thing was a ruse. It's such a cool scene where Tex is like laughing like maniacally on the bed just kind of like losing it a bit. It's like, you stupid, you thought she was so great. And it's just like this slow zoom of Cary Grant's face, just like so serious. It's a cool scene. There's so many like amazing cinematography and camera, like when the camera angles and like how they tell the story with lighting. Like, I mean, we could do like a whole freaking thing on all of those pieces. The men coming in from the dark in the beginning. Yeah, there were so many things that were handled just beautifully artistic wise in that way of like the cinematography gorgeous the lighting gorgeous so smart um so Tex wow he's great that's James Coburn and I'm so embarrassed because we did the last of Sheila and Nick was like Sarah what's this guy been in I'm like a bunch of shit I haven't seen like the Magnificent Seven he was in Murder She Wrote and I know that because I watch Murder She Wrote but that's you know whatever and then I realized like, oh my God, that's James Coburn. He was just so young and I didn't put two and two together. I felt like such a dummy. He was there the whole time. To this moment, I didn't connect him with the Magnificent Seven. He looks so different. But I think he has such a cool energy as an actor. He's so interesting to watch. And he has a swagger on screen, like a legitimate swagger. Um, mm -hmm. That scene when the three kind of villains walk in during the funeral and we're such learning a good all scene. about them. It's such a good scene and it tells about each of them, how they handle things. So there's this funeral, no one shows up and Audrey Hepburn and her friend are kind of making snarky comments about it, which is great. And then the three men show up. Again, we mentioned they come out of the dark. We see them in shadows first and you're like, who is this? <laughs> They're all trying to find out if Charles is really dead or if he's faking it. So they each have a different way of doing this and their methods are all like explanatory of who they are. So we first get like a bespectacled man. Uh, Gideon comes in to find out if Charles is really dead. He sneezes on him a bunch. And guess what? That doesn't wake up Charles. He sits down. Tex comes in. Tex gets a mirror out, holds it out under his nose. He's like, is he breathing? It's not breathing. Okay, I'll sit down. Like kind of a crude guy, pretty upfront, And he has got that swagger when he comes in. George Kennedy comes in, hiding his hook. By the way, we don't see it till the Audrey Hepburn scene. And he's menacing. And he like barrels in with a frowny face. And he takes a pin out of his jacket and he sticks it <laughs> right into the corpse. And everyone goes, <gasps> And then so he's like, okay, he throws it on the ground and he just walks out. So I'm like, that tells you who each of those men are. We now know. It's almost like the the three dwarves come in and they all like have a name. Like Sneezy comes in, then the Texan comes in, then the psychopath comes in. It's like they just one after another, they have their like little sticky thing that they do, which is so great. What I just realized too is they never come back around with that funny Italian police officer. There's like a comedic Italian police officer that just is around every now and then. And they have that part where he's like following Audrey Hepburn and she's like, I don't think that Judy really killed Punch in this puppet show. And the police officer's behind them and you're like, ooh, what will come of this? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing comes of that. Just he there. scolds them after they find Scobie in the bathtub. That's the last we see of him. Just there to be suspenseful and to be like, oh, is this a thing? No, it was a misdirect. A little red herring up in there. I definitely looked up what um, a quarter of a million dollars was, like what it would be today. And it would be $2,137,107.84. Okay. Says Google. You hear it now from like 1963 and you're like, a quarter million dollars? Like, oh, it's like $2 million. That's a lot. And if you split it between five people, it's still like 400000 each. It makes me more upset that there are stamps that are worth that much, if I'm being totally honest. Right. I'm more upset about that than maybe anything yeah. else. 
But yeah, that's that's a significant amount of money. It's not, I mean, it. no money sounds like enough to kill for. Good answer. Thanks. Thanks, Zoe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I passed the test. Yay. <laughs> John Louis was way too calm when they kidnapped him. Like Sneezy, the Texan guy and a psychopath kidnap like a seven-year-old kid but like he's like doopadoo sitting on the lap of you know mr claw and it's fine like and he's like found the thing above the bureau and he's like i found it i found it i'm gonna go tell my kidnappers Whoop-a-doosh. oh my god i was like kid you're ruining everything but yeah jean louis is a pretty cool customer a pretty cool kid um we get the sense that he's a little bit of a terror he is almost the instigator of everything because if you think about it he shoots both Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant in the face with water. They fall in love. He loves stamps. The whole plot has to do with stamps. He gets everyone in further knowledge together over things when he is kidnapped. Like, kid's in charge of a whole lot. Kid really, kid really wraps everything together. So, he really uh, does. With his little turtleneck sweater and his little shorts. I know, he's so cute. Little shorts, little sweater. I did think it was really rude that he shot both of them in the face with water. I was like, that's insanely rude. Right? Don't do that, child. Yeah. That's what I think. Not okay. Every time I turn the page, I see stamps and big letters because <laughs> they're showing us constantly the things in the bag and we're seeing the stamps constantly and the people are like, we're looking at it. I know we're looking at it. Where could it be? And they make references to the mail all the time. She's like, tossed off the train like a sack of third, third class mail. Exactly. And I was like, Oh, mail. The stamps. So we haven't really talked about like the people of Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant necessarily and Stanley Donnan. Do you want me to tell you maybe a little bit about these people? Oh, please. Okay. So Audrey Hepburn, we love her. She's the best. If you want to learn more about Audrey Hepburn, there are so many references for you. Like she does a great interview with Terry Gross in the Fresh Air Archives. Check it out. That book I was talking about, Fifth Avenue 5AM is great. Mo Rocca did a mobituaries on her. That was really great and lovely. And there's so much more than that. There's just so much Audrey Hepburn information. But the best thing about like studying Audrey Hepburn is that she is beloved by everybody. There are no asshole stories about her. She was apparently just like a lovely, lovely human. And that makes me feel so good to know. Because there were there were so many terrible people. And she was not a terrible person. I remember watching a made-for-TV movie about the life of Audrey Hepburn, played by Jennifer, Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> I, I remember. Like, I never knew. Yep, I remember that. Oh, we should rewatch that, Zoe. That would be really fun. We really should. And there's like a PBS series that she did that I was like, it's like Gardens with Audrey. And I was like, I'd watch that. I'd watch Audrey Hepburn touring gardens all over the world. Yes, I would. So Audrey Hepburn was born in Belgium. Her dad was British. And I know she died with British nationality. She grew up all over. She grew up in Belgium, England, and the Netherlands. Her parents were fucked up dicks. They were fascists and Nazi sympathizers. And Audrey's like, that's not okay. Her growing up is very interesting because, again, her parents are fascists. Her dad leaves her family, like abandons them, I think when she's 9 or 10. And she says it's the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to her. And she survived, like, living in Belgium during a famine in World War II and starved for months. So she's saying the trauma of her dad abandoning her family was higher than starving. So that's, like what that felt like but yeah so her parents are dicks dad goes off mom is also a fascist and a nazi sympathizer but mom is at home and audrey is not here for it audrey is like no no this is wrong there used to be people that said like she was part of the resistance but there's no like real evidence that she was actually like doing um 
like resistance work, but she was raising money for the resistance. So she was a dancer. She was a ballerina and she would put on shows. She would try to raise money. So she was doing those kinds of things, but she wasn't actually like, I, I remember once hearing rumor that like she was a spy and like, Audrey Hepburn was not a spy, but she was handing out pamphlets. She was raising money as a modern person, like, and you're kind of stuck in Belgium and you're like 15, you know, she was doing her best. (laughs) She was not a Nazi. So thank God for that. But what the Germans ended up doing was they cut off supplies to come into her town. And so there was like a famine in Belgium and no one could eat. There was no food. So uh, a lot of people would try to make flour out of tulips and they would try to live off of that. Um, But there are lots of people that said that Audrey Hepburn was anorexic. And apparently that's not true. Apparently she was so malnourished during her childhood during the war that she was never fully able to like gain fat on her body. And she had a lot of issues because of the malnourishment. Because yeah, they just like did not have food. She talks about it on Terry Gross a little bit too, where you're like, this is so sad and disturbing. So there is that. She is training to become a ballerina. She ends up in England and they kind of break it to her. I think she performs in a few things and they're like, you're never going to be a prima ballerina. Sorry. And she's like, well, what's the point? I don't want to be a ballerina anymore. Um, She was modeling, she was getting some work acting, and she books this small film, and this famous French author Colette is there one day when they're shooting, or like at the location that they're shooting, and she sees Audrey Hepburn and talks to her, and she's like, oh, you're perfect for my my play. I'm doing a play. Gigi, it's going to be on Broadway. You're Gigi. Will you be in my play? And Audrey Hepburn's like, I'm Audrey Hepburn, yes. Um, So they put her in the play, and it's a huge hit. It's Gigi on Broadway. And that's how she gets Roman Holiday. And think, I mean, just think about this. This is not her first movie ever, but it's her first like big role ever. And she wins an Oscar. She's yeah. so good. She's so wonderful at this part. Like they were considering um, Elizabeth Taylor, I think, was supposed to be in the part. And then William Wyler saw Audrey Hepburn and said, no, we can't have Elizabeth. This was the quote William Wyler had about her, about why they cast her. He said, she had everything I was looking for. Charm, innocence, and talent. She was also very funny. She was absolutely enchanting. Enchanting. Worth it follows her the rest of her life. So yeah, she beats out Elizabeth Taylor (laughs) for this role and is so stunning in it. She won an Oscar. She won a Golden Globe. She won a BAFTA for this performance. And this year, the movie came out in 53, so she wins in 54. She ends up winning the Tony that year, too, for another Ugh. play she did called Ondine. So she won the Tony and the Oscar within, like, days or weeks of each other. And she misses the curse, too, because, you know, the saying goes that if you're pretty much a nobody and then you get a Best Actress award, you're going to have a slump, you're going to be weird, you're going to get into drugs, you're going to... Something happens, like, so often. And it didn't. Well, she's an icon. Like, nobody is like her. Nobody, First of all, nobody talks like her because she has accents oh. from everywhere. I don't know. She's just this light. She's just this brilliant, like wonderful light that really shines. You can see what a lovely human she is. Everyone loved working with her. She had terrible taste in men, you know, as is a thing. She married Mel Ferrer. Ferrer. <laughs> I can't say his name. He's an actor. He was in War and Peace with her, but they met when she was doing Andine on Broadway. No, wait, they met. Gregory Peck introduced them, I heard, at a party. But they did a play together, too. And then they did the movie together. She marries him. He's a bit controlling. Um, he's a bit manipulative. He seems like kind of a dick. He has a temper. Right. Yeah, so not not the best dude. I don't know that he was right. physically abusive, but he doesn't seem like a swell guy, let's say. Then she marries this guy, Andrea Dotti. I can't say his name. He's a cheater. He cheats on her a bunch. He's Italian, so she gets to live in Italy, so that's fun. 
But yeah, she has kids from like, I think each of the marriages. She has kids and she loves her kids. Oh, she has an affair with Ben Gazzara during this time. Because uh. um, he's cheating on her. So she's like, you know what, husband, I'm gonna... Uh, right? I'm Audrey Hepburn. So she does that. And then um, Robert Walders, who is Merle Oberon's husband, and she died. So he's a widower. A widower. Okay, that's a word. And um, <laughs> that was her final relationship. And it turns out that was her happiest one. She was with him till she she passed away. So she did find love in her more older years. Good. She doesn't live to be that old because she dies of stomach cancer in 1993. Oh, my God. The other thing about her is she does so much humanitarian work. She goes all over the world to try to make things better for people. And she works for UNICEF. And she wins the Presidential Medal of Freedom for humanitarian work. And she's just the best. And we love her. So yay, Audrey. You're great. And cut to fucking Cary Grant. Okay, so Cary Grant. Comes from a troubled childhood. Audrey Hepburn also did. Different standards for men and women. He was also older too. And received like no love in his childhood. Who knows if Audrey Hepburn did or not. Whatever. Anyway, so Cary Grant. (laughs) His name, Archibald Leach. Archie Leach, love the name. Archie Alec Leach. So he had a very unhappy upbringing. He had an alcoholic father and a mother who was clinically depressed. Neither of them knew how to show affection. (laughs) Right. Um, So he like received zero affection. So his dad is a complete asshole. So basically what happens is his alcoholic, evil father. I'm not saying his father was evil because he's an alcoholic. I'm saying that his dad was like abusive and a monster and was also an alcoholic. So that he puts uh, Cary Grant's mom in a mental institution. And Cary Grant comes home from school and he's like, your mom went on a vacation. And his mom doesn't come back. And so and then eventually I think he tells him that his mom just died. Um, And so Cary Grant feels like abandoned and upset and finds out in his 30s apparently that his mom was actually alive the whole freaking time um and then like tries to get help for her and stuff anyway so that's pretty that's pretty messed up he he befriends a troop of acrobats as a young teenager as you do and becomes a stilt walker and i know he gets expelled from school he's a mischievous youth uh as a teenager he ends up going on tour with this this group they're called the the penders he basically ends up like getting in the vaudeville circuit and uh he's eventually picked up by movie producers and they try to turn him into the epitome of masculine glamour and douglas fairbanks is kind of his template like his original role model for how he's gonna be um his career to me is really interesting because he goes through a lot of different phases he has a very long career he chooses when he wants to retire, and it's shortly after this film. He only does, like, two more pictures after this. Like, one more hit, Father Goose. His career basically goes from, like, 1929 or 1930 all the way to, like, 1965 or 66. And he doesn't really have a lag. Like, we were talking about Gary Cooper last week. It's very similar to Gary Cooper. Like, he's a movie star for a very long time. A successful movie star for a very long time. And his career is interesting because he starts off as, like, they're testing him out. He's like a leading man for strong women. Like he's sexy but doesn't really have a personality. Then they figure out he can do screwball comedy and they're like, oh shit, you're our physical comedy guy and you're handsome and you're great, go. And then he starts doing, I mean, he does Penny Serenade. He starts doing some dramatic stuff. He just starts doing Hitchcock and he enters more of the world of like, oh, I can do comedy but I can also do these Hitchcock thrillers that people love. Um, and he does that for a long time. He does so many films with Hitchcock and just – so many notable films all over the place. He never does anything like Westerns. He's always a sophisticated oh, debonair Can you man. imagine? Oh, man. Cary Grant a Western? No, I can't. 
But yeah, he just, he works forever and eventually chooses to retire because he feels like he looks too old and doesn't want to age anymore in front of the camera. That's kind of his impetus. And I shared my theory during The Last of Sheila. I almost feel like maybe he became so controlling of Diane Cannon because he was retiring from his movie career and like didn't know what to do. So he's like, I can control this thing. I'm not making excuses for it. Like, it's not okay. But I was like, I bet you that's where that started to come from. Mm-hmm. Oh, Carrie. So yeah, and there were a lot of like things on his pages about like, he just never knew how to talk to women. And I'm like, okay, stop, <laughs> stop. Like, don't. He was kind of abusive in a time when men were kind of abusive and that was normal. Like, it's yeah. terrible. So yeah, Cary Grant's a mixed bag. Uh, I did once hear one of his biographers said that they knew he was selfish because they were reading his diary and he only talked about himself and not world events. And I was like, okay, now I just feel judged. I'm terrified of what's in my diary. Like, that's where you work out your feelings. Are you not supposed to talk about yourself? Right? What else can you be, like, all about me? It's my diary. Right? Go away. Thanks for being on board with that. Um, Because, yeah, that got me self-conscious, too, about, like, oh, shit, if anyone ever read my diary, they'd be like, what a self, whatever. Like, I don't know. Right? Those are There's probably a whole chapter about me wanting to go to a party about oranges in there. And he's been in, like, every movie ever. Like, if you can think of a movie that's classic, he's probably in it. You've probably seen it. I don't even need to list them. There's just so many. Before I move on to Stanley Donnan, do you have a favorite Cary Grant movie? I just want to ask. I know it's problematic now. I have not rewatched it since I was young. I loved bringing a baby. I watched it on repeat when I was very young. I think for me, I mean, An Affair to Remember is my most favorite Cary Grant performance, but I love His Girl Friday. I think that's, he's kind of a dick to her too in that movie, but I still love that movie. That might be my favorite. It's so good. I do love him in Charade. I also love him in North by Northwest. I do, but I watched it a couple years ago and was super annoyed by, um, so I've seen, you know, I've seen the movie a lot, but... I haven't seen it recently. I remember being really annoyed by his character a lot the last time I watched it. And I was like, I can't handle you. You're such a dick. I, I just am so annoyed with you right now. Yeah. Um, it's fun. It's sexist. Shocking. Hitchcock? I know, right? No. Hitchcock, what? a film from 1957, is sexist? Yeah. And sorry, everybody at home. Every week you're like, oh, Sarah, you're so critical. And you know what? Like, it's fine because I love these movies. I'm just pointing out things that, like, in our modern day might be troublesome for us. We gotta be honest, man. So we're gonna move on to Stanley Donham real quick. Stanley Donham, director. We mentioned some of his films earlier. On the Town, Singing in the Rain. Give a girl a break. I love that one. Royal Wedding, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. It's Always Fair Weather, Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn. The Pajama Game, Charade. Such great films. He was born in South Carolina to Jewish parents. So he was a Jewish kid is what I'm trying to say. But he eventually became an atheist. Also, he was bullied in school for being Jewish. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. That sucks. Anti-Semites are the worst. If you're an anti-Semite and you're listening to this, just examine your ways and change. Yeah. Don't be a jerk. You suck. You suck. Uh, Flying Down to Rio was at their local movie theater when he was 10. And he became obsessed with it and saw it like 40 times. And was like, well, Fred Astaire is my hero now. I, I got to dance. So he enrolled in dance classes. He became like a, a really good dancer and moved to New York and was like making it on Broadway. And he met Gene Kelly. So Gene Kelly was the star of Pal Joey. That's like Gene Kelly's big break in general, like being Pal Joey on Broadway. And then um, Stanley Donham was in the chorus and they got along. And when Gene Kelly was working on another project, he's like, do you want to assistant choreograph and like help me out? And so they build this working relationship that's really successful, but eventually they end up hating each other because they each feel like the other was not giving them enough credit. 
So like Gene oh. Kelly is like, no, I was the star. I should get more credit. And Stanley Donnan's like, no, that was my idea. So they kind of don't get along towards the end of their lives and like battle each other because they both feel like not respected by the other for like their achievements. I know. <laughs> I'm like, you did it together. You both came up with it. I mentioned earlier, Peter Joshua, that name was named after his two kids, Peter and Joshua. So he made it one name for the character in the film. Much like um, Cary Grant, he was also married five times. Oh, I also forgot to mention about Cary Grant. He was very likely bisexual. Um, he lived with this man, Randolph Scott, for like several years, like over a decade. And there were lots of rumors, but there's never been any like concrete proof. Like there's no like love letters or anything. But I mean, you know, he could have been. I, I would support that. would make me like him more, quite frankly. I think I've heard that. Well, I think on Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase said something. He, he used a word I'm not going to uh, use. And yeah. uh, Cary Grant sued him or like made them retract it or I forget what it was. So yeah, that, that's Stanley Donnan. The other people in the film that just deserve honorable mention, Walter Matthau we talked about a little. He plays Carson Dial, who's also Bartholomew. You know him from The Odd Couple, The Taking of Pelham 123, Grumpy Old Men. He also studied um, at the New School with like Marlon Brando and all of them. We talked about James Coburn and he played Tex. George Kennedy, Cool Hand Luke, he plays Scobie. And then Ned Glass plays Gideon. He's in West Side Story as Doc. He's in The Fortune Cookie. He's in Kid Galahad with Elvis. Those are some of his films. So those are kind of like all the main players. I also did want to say there's a cameo in this film. Peter Stone, the writer, is one of the guys in the elevator in that scene when he's going in Bartholomew's office and the elevator's going down. So Peter Stone is one of the guys, and then Stanley Donnan put his own voice in, looping over. So it's Stanley Donnan's voice saying something, and then, yeah, isn't that cool? So it's like a the whole, like, oh, I got him in cards, and I, he was so stupid with a pair of twos. And he's like, why does that make you sad? It's like, well, if I could do it, what are the Russians doing to him? That exact part is a cameo. Thank you. Anytime. It's great. And then I also was noticing the terrible looping this time. I love Audrey Hepburn, as you know, but girl hates lip syncing, as you can see in My Fair Lady, and she hates looping her own dialogue. She does not even try to match her own mouth, like especially when they're out skiing, the second scene when they're like air is showing in the breath, like when it's cold. Her dialogue does not even match her lips. They're not even trying. That was just a fun thing that I noticed. I will say that I was very impressed by how well Cary Grant's character comes up with new names on the spot. Like, bam, Adam Camfield. Like, that's a wonderful name. If you asked me what my made-up name was in the moment, I'd be like, I'm Lampshade Tableson. Like, that's what my name would be. I'm very impressed by him. I was going to ask you what your favorite name of his was. Because, yeah, the real (laughs) one that they make a joke about, in the end, he's like, my name's Brian Crookshank. And she's like, I would get stuck with that one. The other names are great. Alexander Dial, Adam Canfield, Peter Joshua. They're all great names. They're fabulous names. Yeah, his ability to lie on the spot is fantastic. Very good. Also, the scene with the lovers was always a scene that stuck me from, like, childhood and middle school. Yeah. It made me really want to visit Paris. There's the part where they're walking on the Champs-Elysees. There's the part where they're like in that square with the stamps. And I'm like, everything here is pretty. I just want to go to there. I know. But yeah, the scene with the boat and they're showing the lovers. And I was like, that's kind of rude, but the lovers don't seem to mind. Yeah, they seem cool with it. I feel like they knew what they were getting in Like they were exhibitionists almost. Yeah, it's like, oh, the boat's coming. But it looks so romantic and beautiful. I love that scene. When they walk along and then they're like, would you do that? Like, do what? Like, swing down from the bell tower to save the woman you love. And he's like, what? It's like, and it pans up to the Notre Dame. 
Like, who put that there? I'm like, oh, Cary Grant, you're hilarious. And she's part of the misdirects too in that scene because she never has a response that you understand or think she's going to have right away. It takes a second to realize her own separate thought process. I love that scene. And I love that line. And I also love how all of those seemingly confusing statements that she's making is right after he was like, why are women so illogical or you can't figure stuff out or whatever. And she's like, I'm doing just fine. Now I'm going to talk circles around you. I'm going to talk about this thing you don't understand. Like, I thought that was, that was like kind of a through line that I saw for the first time this time. I'm like, yeah, get it, girl. You're fast. You know what you're doing. I love that. I didn't pick that up because we see how quick she is throughout. Mm -hmm. Like she's verbally quick, but then we see her thinking on her feet and how smart she is on her feet. And she was running in those teeny tiny heels. She ran a lot in those shoes. I love how she makes him rub her feet at the end. I loved that too. I hadn't seen it in so long and it was such a treat to get back to it, you know? It hooked me like right away. As soon as I heard the music, I was like, oh, I remember this movie. I love this movie. And like, it kept me the whole way. I was in it. I was there. Well, and what's fun about this movie too is like, I have seen this movie countless times. The twists don't even matter because you're having, you have so much fun along the way. Like, it doesn't matter that we know all the twists. I'm still going to sit down and watch it. Like, I still enjoy it. And I think it's a testament to all the different elements of the film. Like, it's not just the plot that gets you. It's the music that adds. It's the cinematography. It's how it jumps from being grotesque to slapstick. It's all these different things. It keeps it interesting throughout the entire movie because of all these different elements that it has. All of them are done very well. Henry Mancini is masterful with this score. We said it earlier, but I'm saying it again. He captures everything we need to capture. The discord and xylophone when things are going wrong is great. The French like charade song that they have underscoring most of the film. And then when things get exciting, that's going. Like those three pieces are just, they're perfect. They're great. They suit everything exactly. And they elevate it. They make it classier and cool because without these people without that score I don't know that this movie is as good they give it class they give it a certain something so yeah I think that we love this movie and I think we're just gonna head into the double feature portion of this show so um double feature portion please don't laugh at me but the thing that I would if you were like Sarah what would you watch this with honestly if it was just me I would just watch it with the Pink Panther if I'm being legit they're both 60s. They both have this like comedic thriller kind of vibe. Like the Pink Panther's a little more comedic. They both have like these classy, cool characters in them. Henry Mancini score. It's a caper. That one princess in the Pink Panther kind of looks like Audrey Hepburn a little bit. But wait, there's more. So the Pink Panther. To Catch a Thief would also be a great thing to watch this with. Cary Grant, it's Hitchcock. You get Grace Kelly. It's a little bit silly, but it's also kind of like a caper whodunit, who do we trust kind of thing. Oh, The Lady Vanishes, I wrote, would be fun to watch this with. Yeah, I stand by that. It's like 1939 or 1938 Hitchcock, um, Michael Redgrave, but it's like comedic. Like it's really funny and still suspenseful. Um, So that's why I picked it because the tone, even though it's black and white and was made way before, the tone is kind of fun and similar. Um, And then just in general, I wrote Wait Until Dark, Audrey Hepburn, 1967. It's suspenseful. It's not really funny. She's great. I've never seen the two others that I think might pair well, so I'm just going to say them. I've never seen How to Steal a Million. I know that's terrible of me. I haven't either. I think you. I was like, I haven't seen it. I'm sorry. I know I should have seen it. I didn't. And then Two for the Road, same. It was directed by Stanley Donnan. It's Audrey Hepburn. I didn't see it. I didn't see it either. But those might pair well, so. It'll be on our to-do list. It's been on my to-do list forever. I've started it on Netflix so many times and then be like, I'm not in the mood. So someday I'll watch it. Oh, and obviously, you know, the Audrey Hepburn story 
made in 2000 by Jennifer Love Hewitt, obviously. Well, go. Zoe, thank you so much for being on this show. You're such a lovely guest. It was so good to have you. Yeah, I love it. I love this movie. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. It's odd classic to me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Zoe Palco. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe, maybe leave like a really nice little review there. You know, that's up to you. No pressure. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to me. Thanks for listening.